Welcome to Make Sense, a show about creatives and how they make sense of the world. My name is Raylan Yant, and throughout this podcast, I'll be talking to different artists and innovators about pressing issues and pensive questions relevant to our lives. For our inaugural episode, I talked to two people who inspired me a lot last year. Lila Smith is an award-winning vocalist and a friend who recently graduated from Harvard with a degree in social studies. She's now finishing up a Master's of Music at the New England Conservatory. Katie Pearl is a director, playwright, and social practice artist who co-founded the adventurous, genre-defying theater company Pearl D'Amour. She was a professor of mine, and her classes at Harvard and Princeton explore the concept of the artist-citizen. Before we begin, just a quick heads up, this podcast might be a little bit different than what some listeners are used to. It's less about a pointed investigation or plot, and more just about natural conversation. So if some things are left open-ended, have no fear. Um, my hope is that this will leave room for you to pose questions and continue the conversation in your own way. So I sat down with Lila and Katie in the summer of 2017 and asked each of them to unpack a big question that I think a lot of artists are used to thinking about, which is, what is the value of the arts? They each had some interesting ideas and experiences to share, and I hope you enjoy listening to them. Here's Lila. The reason why Harvard hasn't been a great fit for me is that I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I have this belief <laughs> um, that artists are supposed to challenge uh, people and challenge institutions. And, you know, we have this very like specific mechanism where we bring people into our world, we have them suspend their disbelief, um, and we can bring about um, new ways of thinking. It's a very sort of specific interaction, I think, the, the interaction between the artist, you know, the constructed relationship of the artist and the audience. And I, I know that that's sort of a like, I don't know, interesting thing and perhaps problematic thing to be discussed later, but anyway. Um, so in that, the artist's role is to challenge and to uh, make one realize um, or, or see an institution or a phenomenon in uh, ways that perhaps you hadn't before, where you hadn't questioned that institution or phenomenon. Um, I think that Harvard is very much so about drinking the Kool-Aid, that in order to enjoy Harvard, you have to... Um, Drink that Kool-Aid, get on board, get into the house system, uh, you know, love your blockmates or whatever. And, like, not to say that everyone who enjoys Harvard does all of those things, but there are things that you have to buy into. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the artist's job is to kind of step away from the Kool-Aid and examine it, um, mm -hmm. to look at what all of those rituals and rites and, um, you know, uh, mechanisms for initiation, like, and indoctrination, you know, examine those things and present them in a uh, to people who might not have realized that they were there. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a strange dilemma for me of needing to drink the Kool-Aid to be happy at Harvard mm -hmm. and ultimately being unable to because I wanted to be an artist. Well, I think it's very difficult to exist as a lone human. Um, and I think that 
you know, ultimately our experiences come down to interaction and relationships um, and how you experience yourself um, as attuned to someone else is, is really like, that's the stuff of your life, you know? Um, and I, and I just think that that's what music, um, and particularly improvised music has the potential to do. Um, when a group of people (laughs) get into a room and and really listen and and it has something to do with the physicality of it as well, that, you know, we, we, our bodies are making something together in tandem in this like hyper-democratic thing where everyone has a say all the time. These are things that we've talked about before. Yeah, I love it. Um, And also, these are ideas that I'm borrowing from um, professors and teachers and mentors. Um, But these are things that resonate with me for real, and these are things that come from people who make music. You know, there's there's no sort of, like, theorist imposing a theory. Like, this is a sort of very... Uh... I don't know, yeah, embodied way of, of knowing things about um, what it is about, like, uh, music and cultures of music. Um, I think that, you know, that's, like, that's the stuff of communities when people get together and talk and listen or when people get together and make music and listen. And it's funny because, like, it's really easy to go on autopilot mm. in conversation or as a musician you know, you know what you know when you know what you think sounds good, so you just play it or mm-hmm. say it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, that's not where the interesting stuff lies. The interesting mm. stuff is where um, you haven't really articulated a thought before, but you really listen to someone, and, like, listening to them allows you to have a new thought, a new unique mm. thought, and so you articulate that. And then and then you realize you're you have a whole complete coherent idea that you've that you never could have understood that you knew Mm -hmm. and it reminds me of actually a musician a long time ago who is an old friend once told me that you know like ideally every conversation um should change you Mm. and i think that that's a good reminder of how to not be on autopilot when Mm -hmm. you're having a conversation that like everyone who has had a really good conversation and I'm sure that everyone in the world has had a really good conversation can identify with this feeling of suddenly you're like outside of your own head and you're you're mm. like having thoughts that you never thought you could could have and and it's the same thing yeah I read this like it's so nerdy but I read this paper <laughs> um that was basically a review of an album and it's like you know it's it's the thing of um when you listen to a really good band play together mm-hmm. Particularly of improvisers. Like, I'm thinking of, like, you know, great improvising bands. Mm-hmm. Um, like, individually, uh, you know, there's there's a thing about each person individually, but when they put... The, the sum of their parts is just, like, somehow so much more. Mm-hmm. And so there's something, like, otherwise being created. An, an immersion property, like you said. Here's Katie. As a theater maker, I often felt frustrated by the lack of contact I felt with my audiences. And um, and one conversation that I find myself in again and again with my theater making colleagues is, um, well, how do we make sure, like say we feel, um, 
say we feel passionately about an issue and it's something that we wish we could change in the world. So then the model seems to be we create a, a narrative, we put it on a stage, and then we hope that mm -hmm. people will take action when they leave the theater. Mm -hmm. Or we have a talk back after the play to talk about like the issues of the play and why it's important. And then we hope that people will take action as mm -hmm. they leave the theater. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not... It's not a great way to feel engagement with your audiences and one of the things that a, a, a really amazing playwright named Maria Irene Fornas always says is when you cook a meal you don't cook a meal because you like to cook a meal you cook a meal so other people will eat it mm -hmm. and enjoy it and the mm -hmm. same with writing a play mm -hmm. I mean she was a traditional playwright she wrote scripts but she would say like you don't write a play so it can sit on the page you write a play so the can perform it and the audiences can consume it mm -hmm. and I take that one step farther like I don't make a performance just so people can say oh what an amazing performance mm -hmm. I was so moved by that performance mm -hmm. I want to make a performance so that not only is the audience changed by it but I'm also changed by it mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. you're getting me on a roll Love one it. of the readings that we started the class with was by Ursula Le Guin mm -hmm. And um, she was describing two different forms of communication. Mm -hmm. And when I, one of them is, is sort of a broadcast form where the speaker, let's call that person A, um, puts something out into the world and, and B, C, D, E, and F are, take it in and mm -hmm. are affected by it, but A remains unchanged. Mm -hmm. Or there's a second kind of communication. Do you remember what that kind is called? Um, I don't remember right at this moment. I don't remember... I can look it up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> where it's more like a, a loop. Yeah. So as A puts something out there, B right. receives it, and the response of B changes A. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the word that came up a lot in our conversations was entrainment, mm -hmm. that it's a way to entrain, which I think happens with music a mm -hmm. lot too. You, you sort of get on the same literal breath cycle or mm -hmm. psychic wavelength mm -hmm. with your audiences. So that can happen in traditional theater, especially when the craft is really high and the writing is really great, you know, when all the pieces are in place. Mm -hmm. But for me, I find um, it happens more readily when I can invite audiences into an entire space where the narrative is expressed in the architecture, in the way people mm -hmm. move through, in the objects that they hold and deal with, in the contact with the performers. A production just closed a couple weeks ago is this project called Milton that I've been working on with my company Pearl Demore for the past five years or so. Mm. So Pearl Demore is a, a collaboration between me and a playwright named Lisa Demore, and we've been working together for almost twenty years oh. now. It's a long time, and. Um, about five years ago, we started feeling like it was an election cycle. Everyone was, people, the word American is bandied around so much, and you're a good American and you're a bad American. And um, something I often think about is my own relationship to that word, and do I feel like that's a term that I'm comfortable claiming? Why don't I want to have an American flag flying out my window? I feel like I want to be able to want that. 
Um, mm. And Lisa was at the same time feeling like we only make work in big cities for audiences who are so similar to us that mm. we really don't understand what this country is. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we thought we'd make a project that would require us to go out into the country, into small towns and encounter people that we would never have reason to meet otherwise and mm -hmm. see what we can learn about them and what that would teach us about us and mm -hmm. what that would help us understand about the country. So we chose five towns that were all called Milton. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that that, so that project involves making a performance, but it involves very extended engagement with the community mm -hmm. that's kind of shaped by what the community is interested in. Mm -hmm. and open for and you know not only is it incredibly gratifying to sit in a room where a performance is happening that was made with and for the audience mm. it's so um, alive mm. and exciting but also the amount that I've learned about just what it means to be a human being or what community is by these deep extended engagements with people who are so different mm -hmm. than than I am and we are and have such different views mm. on the world is uh, startling yeah <laughs> and um, and I don't know if I could name right off the bat how that has changed me but or if it or if it has led me to have kind of answers like well what do we do about the country now is does an american community exist how do we find it like there are different things that i've learned um but one of the big things i've learned is the depth with which we make assumptions about people especially based on education and economic class for me, I mean, I was constantly coming up against my assumptions. And, and one of the clearest lessons I've learned is that no matter who someone is, what their life is like, they have thought deeply about themselves and the world. Like mm. they own a, a philosophy of life mm. and they have views that are thought out, mm -hmm. you know? Sometimes the range that the thought goes is limited by context or what they're... But, um, so that was a good lesson. Mm -hmm. One anecdote we tell sometimes um, was we were in Oregon, we were making a big potluck mm -hmm. dinner for community partners and this woman who's we had become friendly with named Jerry Seagrave mm -hmm. was you know stirring up some cornbread next to us and and we were like oh jerry how's your day been and she's like oh i have just had the best day i spent all morning collecting all sorts of clothes for those nice boys who are occupying that federal land do you remember when that was happening yeah. they have you know like taken over that land and, yeah um and she was you know support, supporting them uh. and we were cooking a meal together uh. And so, so what do you do in yeah. that moment? You know, we were like, oh, oh. that's nice. It, it, we didn't open up that 
door and say, oh, that's fascinating because yeah. we're in total disagreement with yeah. what they're doing, how interesting that we're cooking a meal together. Yeah. And I think that's the next step I want to ask myself. Like mm-hmm. now we've put in all of this. So one of your questions was why, what's the value of art? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've learned is that, um, oh, I'm having six thoughts at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just read an article by a woman named Joanna Macy. Okay. And one thing she said in it I found really interesting, which is that she thinks that a lot of what's, that there's an essential loneliness in the world right now. And she tied that essential loneliness to the fact that humans have figured out how to split an atom. Mm. Like this or the a hydrogen atom. So mm-hmm. the str- the base bond, mm-hmm. the strongest bond mm-hmm. in the universe, we have figured out how to break. Mm-hmm. But we don't have the wisdom to really understand mm-hmm. how to hold that or mm-hmm. what to do with that. So mm-hmm. I want to spend more time thinking about that, but there's something in that that, that feels that I'm en- enchanted by and it ties into me a lot of comments we got during this project, which is, so we would sit down and ask people four questions. How did you get to Milton? If mm. there were one thing you could change about the world, what would it be? Do you have advice for future generations? And mm. why do you think we're here on this earth? Mm. It's like philosophical questions. Yeah. And so often at first people would say like, oh God, yeah. <laughs> I can't answer those. Yeah. And then we'd start at the beginning and they would. Mm. And then we'd get to the end of the conversation and they would say, "I." I don't know, it has been so long since I've sat down and talked to somebody Mm. like this. And what I realized is that when you're an artist and you're making a project, you have an excuse to be in contact. Mm. It is impossible for a random person walking down the street to go up to another random person and say like, hey, can I ask you a question? But if I have a project, I can say, hey, I'm an artist and I have this project. Would you mind sitting down and talking to me for a few minutes? And if people have time, they they will. And it makes me braver. Mm -hmm. I'm not brave enough to do that. Mm -hmm. Like just talk, I'm on the subway and I... I, I often want to, yeah. but I never do. But when I'm in a Milton and I kind of am bolstered by this structure, mm-hmm. then I can. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to think about the artist not just being a career mm-hmm. um, or art just not just being a product that one creates Mm -hmm. or shows to other people but as like a slice or a lens or something Mm -hmm. an aspect of how we live Mm -hmm. almost like performance improvisation yeah i i mean i agree i think that like artist as a category is so unstable because if Mm -hmm. you think about like what are the properties of being an artist Mm -hmm. is it performance is it like being on display you know people are constantly on display yeah Yeah. (laughs) um when harriet goes to the party (laughs) and she talks to joey yeah joey's watching her display (laughs) performance performance improvisation right yeah yeah exactly um so yeah i just think that those properties are definitely there Mm. and like maybe it more so has to do with 
I don't know. Maybe maybe there are other things, and maybe it has to do with um, labor, or it has to do with um, like a sort of like the social convention of an artist um, being on a soapbox, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, people don't walk around being on soapboxes. Mm-hmm. You know that is a sort of like. Uh, socially designated thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there's there's something there, but it's not something that we don't decide yeah. as like a group of people. You know, it's yeah. it's not something that somebody comes out the womb and is on a soapbox, right. unless unless they're like two super famous people's kids. Right. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's Blue a Ivy. different thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Blue Ivy's the exception. <laughs> I mean, Jaden Smith. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. those tweets. <laughs> From your perspective, yeah. from your understanding, to what extent is it possible to be socially engaged through one's music? And what has it been like for you to kind of balance and maybe bring together the part of yourself that wants to make good music and the part of yourself that wants to create positive social change? Yeah. Oh, man. This is some tough stuff. Yeah. And I haven't fully figured it out but yeah so I organized for I organized for the graduate student campaign um to form a union at Harvard which is um the uh the union the larger union that they've affiliated with is the UAW which is United uh auto aerospace um agricultural tools and academic workers um yeah lots of a's under there and and something cool also is that the aclu is um organized by the uaw Mm -hmm. so it's this very diverse union Mm um anyway um so a couple there are a couple connections that i see one is that as i noted i think it's the, the artist's job to make people feel uncomfortable or at least give them the opportunity to feel uncomfortable um and um, that's what organizing is all about. Mm-hmm. Maintaining the status quo is easy. Mm-hmm. Change is hard and mm-hmm. makes people feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I hate. Like, as a person with social anxiety, like, I'm not trying to... I Like, it's hard to move people and it takes mm-hmm. energy and bandwidth. And frankly, it's like loving someone. It's mm-hmm. like, it's just like so much energy. Um, and you're trying to do something for the betterment of not only you two, but like of the of the world this is about a movement mm-hmm. um um and it's hard and then the other thing is that and i'm not sure that this is exactly a connection but i think it's something that artists should keep in mind that um the way on the ground activism really works is it's not that you go out and make a public statement about trying to change the world as artists are want to do mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. Um, and not providing answers. Mm. On the ground activism and on the ground organizing is having extended conversations with people about changing the status quo, right. because um, as noted, people don't people don't want to move. They're they're afraid to move. And the way you organize and the way you get social change to happen is you talk through fears with people. You, you know, give them data and and try to like work through questions. Um, and show people that the way you think that your organizing is happening. So for me, I think that a union is uh, really, really valuable and really important to creating progressive change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and I'm constantly trying to convince people of that because of of course people can 
decide, oh, I think the women's march is a, is a better mode of activism, or I think, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so people have to decide where they're going to put their organizing energies. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, you know, like, when something is a, is a, uh, is a new movement or a, or a large movement, people don't just show up out of nowhere. Those people have to be talked to. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, someone is having that extended uncomfortable conversation with yeah. that person. Um, and so, yeah, it's a question. Do artists really make the effort to, to do that real work? Yeah. Cause who's doing that real work for them? If they're, if they're really doing something that they believe in and, and but also it's like organizing requires a lot of different branches. There are the people who are having the hard conversations who are really, they're the real people. <laughs> they're the real activists. Um, and then there are people who make statements in the media mm-hmm. for sort of larger coverage. Um, and then there are, I don't know, lobbyists mm-hmm. and policymakers. Um, and maybe the artist just fits into that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a question. And, and I, I do have to say that I, f- I feel good being able to like, actually organize for something that mm-hmm. I believe in mm-hmm. um, and and it sort of like validates the like artistic work that I recognize is partially for me mm-hmm. so what I'm kind of hearing about like the connection between like perhaps your musician self and your activist self it's that it's not it's not as kind of linear as I play music and I do it at a protest and then that results in this (laughs) activist result. And it's more like there are things that both of these selves share. Mm. Like, you know, you're having conversations and you're listening a lot. Mm. There's this empathy that has to happen, Mm. this emotional labor that has to happen. Um, This intimacy, like of of having the, those one-on-one uncomfortable conversations um and so it seems that like both of these parts of you kind of might feed into each other but not necessarily be directly related to each other um and i yeah i don't know how to articulate it but do you feel that way that it's like yeah I think what you just made me realize is that I have an idea of the kind of person that I want to be, and that's, you know, like an ultra <laughs> loving, an ultra compassionate, an ultra patient, empathetic, you know, all of those, all of that good shit. Mm-hmm. And both of those spheres allow me, or give me the potential to to be that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can be that person in both those options. And mm-hmm. like, if I were working for, if I were going into any other I don't know, feel doing, doing whatever. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that within my job, I mm. would be able, I would like be given a pathway to be the best kind of person I want to be. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. I think I said, I often say, um, intimate encounter and creative contact, I think is necessary in maintaining a humane world. Yes. Yes. That's, yes. Yeah, and that's something that really crystallized for me while I was watching the um, primary season. Mm. I mean, there's no 
chance that the human race will survive without the ability and desire to be in conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that conversation is an intimate act. Should can be. It should be. Yeah. And I think what you just said is really true too, that art creates a, a, a third space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in intimacy and third spaces kind of can scare people sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we live in a world in which we're taught many ways in which many ways to not be intimate mm -hmm. and to be in a competition with each other mm -hmm. and to be steeled against the world and individual like to be individualized mm -hmm. and um, so our normal mode of operation can often be very um, you know, um, self-driven mm -hmm. and at times cold, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, and not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe that's why when you're in a workplace, like, it's, it's, or even in some social settings, it's kind of looked down upon to say vulnerable things. Mm -hmm. Um but I, I feel like maybe one of the results of that is the buildup of a lot of pain and a lot of frustration um, and fear mm -hmm. um, that can play out, it can sort of be released mm -hmm. in unpredictable ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that the election is is was one of those moments mm -hmm. of release mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that it's creating a more humane world um, although fascinating to watch how like Jerry Brown is going to speak with the president of China about the climate mm, you know or yeah. I mean he is yeah. now like it's becoming more humane in that people are willing to break from the tradition. Mm -hmm. They're feeling like, called. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or like there's an... Yeah. Um, I was going to say something when we were talking about all of that. Oh, intimacy. Mm -hmm. I wonder if a word... Like the word vulnerable has gotten a pretty bad rap. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I wonder if an if a better word right now or a good word to play with is porous. Oh. Uh. Because like when I think about it through the lens of architecture, mm. one of my big uh, influences is Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. And we talked about him a little bit in class. But it's a very easy visual metaphor to think about a building that was built to keep the outside out and the inside in, mm -hmm. which is the way, for example, skyscrapers are built today, mm -hmm. or big castles were built in the past. Um, 
And then Frank Lloyd Wright said, actually, it's I'm much more interested in letting the inside out mm-hmm. and letting the outside in. Mm-hmm. And that that, um, I mean, you could also say har- har- harmony, but this idea of porousness is useful too when I think about climate mm-hmm. and putting a climate lens on things because mm-hmm. what you were also describing is, is kind of maybe the reason why we've, is either the reason why or the result of um, ending up in this anthropocentric age mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we're in. Yeah. And um, the insularity. Yeah. And so I like porous because it's a physical term. Yeah. And it acknowledges that we're physical beings too. And yeah. You know, I'm one of those people who really believes that emotion and psychology and physical self yes. are tied together. So to be vulnerable. It's easy to forget that that also is um, changes you physically yes. in the world, yes. or the air around you. Mm-hmm. So, um, and to be an artist, I mean, there's every artist is different. So mm-hmm. I, I'm generalizing when I say this completely and <laughs> unhelpfully, but I do feel like, well, my definition of an artist requires a kind of porousness Mm -hmm. because it's about being in relation to the world Mm -hmm. around you which you cannot do if you're just in your own isolated silo yeah yeah i'm curating a series of conversations um and one of them is about uh, art and advocacy Mm -hmm. like what is that crossover and Um, I was speaking to somebody who's in charge of the New York Seascape program at Mm. the aquarium. And he was talking about the impact of sending, like, a book of haiku that people have written about this issue that they want changed versus just an email campaign. And he said that it, he believes in his experience that it makes a difference when people really care enough about what they care about to make something. But mm. then he said the, the, the challenge then is helping an ordinary non-artist person feel comfortable and sort of have access to even knowing how to create a, a response that's creative instead of just intellectual. Right. It's, you, so you mentioned like care mm. and how it's like by using a, an artistic medium, you can give that care dimension. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer just a transfer of information. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are upset about this, but it's actually an actual, substantial, like, uh, entity of care. Yeah. <laughs> Something that, that can then have its own impact. Um, instead of just saying, a lot of people care about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, because you can't help but put yourself into what you make. Even yeah. if you think you're not, yeah. you are. Yeah. But I, I do advocate for whatever the um, modality the, of choice the work is. It, ha- it has to be... You have to be you have to work at that craft. Yeah. And if I want to make a piece that's a music-based piece, 
I'm not going to compose the music because mm-hmm. like, I can write songs on the guitar, mm-hmm. but that's not good enough for this. And yeah. so I have to go find the best person who's within my sphere and my reach mm-hmm. to collaborate with on that. And so many issue-based pieces mm-hmm. recently, especially about the climate, yeah. about everything. They're just not, the writing isn't yeah. fully articulated, mm-hmm. the directing, you know, it's it's not people at the top of their form. Right. And, and you, we have, we have to put work out there. Yeah. That's at that's at the top of our form. To make it compelling. Yeah, because otherwise it won't enter. Mm-hmm. You won't actually like interpenetrate that person yeah. you're trying to reach. You won't in in achieve the entrainment. No. Yeah. It won't be strong enough. I remember we read a paper by Letterock mm-hmm. um, about the moral imagination. Yes. And I found that so interesting. Yeah. About like art being a language we can use to talk about morality and yeah. develop our our own morality yeah. um, because there aren't that many languages out there for that yeah. um, but a work of art can either make you have an experience to help you understand someone else's perspective mm-hmm. or it can just totally poke a hole in your own worldview and or challenge you or make you make you interrogate yourself or something and I feel like I feel like one of the challenges we face now is yeah you know, I, I feel like technologically like every like so much is happening and, mm-hmm. and you know if we're getting all the tools we could ever want mm-hmm. you know faster than we can even use them mm-hmm. but we haven't really figured out how to use the tools Mm -hmm. that we have and the resources that we have. We're just developing kind of full throttle, Mm -hmm. almost blindly maybe, Mm -hmm. like just, just in pursuit of more development, Mm -hmm. um, without necessarily interrogating, okay, wait, what is it we want in the first place? Mm -hmm. What, what fulfills us? Where do we find meaning? Mm -hmm. Um, what is good? Mm-hmm. Um, and so from a, like a development perspective, I feel like the arts have an important role to play in guiding mm. how we develop, um, giving us feedback, um, helping us think about the decisions we're making. Mm-hmm. And understand the complexity of the decisions we're making. Mm-hmm. It's very broad what I'm saying, but <laughs> well, it reminds me of one thing that a man named Michael Rode often says, and he founded something that is called something like the Center for Civic Practice. He's oh, yeah. a theater artist. Yeah. And he originally had a theater company called Sojourn mm. Theater. Um, but one thing he talks about is that what theater artists have to offer, let's say, um, a corporate environment Mm -hmm. or a civic office environment is not necessarily our product, but our process. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's something that, you know, when you are an artist and that is how you move through the world, you don't, it doesn't occur to you that the way you think about things is different than the way other people think about them. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it actually is. Yeah. Um, and and we could talk about why that is or how that is. Um, but one of the things might have to do with teaching ourselves not to fear the unknown. Yeah. Or not to fear the imaginative leap. And I do that exercise in class where I ask us to like live in that unknown until something other than our sort of smart person's brain makes the decision. Yeah. Can our can our information, can our awareness, can our decisions come from a place other than let me analyze, let me think, let me come up with it. Yeah. And it can. Yeah. When you let yourself be embodied in a moment. Mm-hmm. And I learned that lesson when I was a kid at an art summer arts camp, mm. and I was watching a mime teacher give a example, and he was making his students sort of do a gesture over and over and over again until the gesture transformed into something else. Mm. And it was, so, it was simple, but you know, like you would see students who would kind of choose. And then he'd say, no, 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 you have to let it Mm. come from somewhere else. And when it came from somewhere else, it was so right. And Mm. there was so much joy Mm. in that moment. And I have carried that with me my whole life and really try to give that to students, especially students who are in Ivy League schools Mm. or in these situations where the the danger of, of letting go of that analytical smart brain is the stakes are so high yeah but you know i said it the other day actually to a producer i was working with who um on a theater production and as we were kind of in our brainstorm phase you know she kept saying like no we can't do that because budget and no we can't do that Mm -hmm. and and my designer and i were getting so mad but what i said to her is it's possible that the answer will be no. That's fine. But we have to be allowed to dream about the play because that's how we learn about the play. Yeah. Is by dreaming about it. Yeah. And um and probably most scientists you talk to would say similar things that it's sort of allowing yourself to be in a creative place where you let your you let your mind free right a little bit when you can not just produce and impose but also receive yeah and be impressed yes um impressed upon impressed yeah upon, yes um and i'm glad you brought scientists into that because i think while artists might be in positions that require them to be in this receptive state a lot and it's not necessarily something that's limited to Mm -hmm. the practice of art Mm -hmm. um or to the like artist profession Mm -hmm. but it's like something about um any creative pursuit when you want to create something new, it can't just come from mm-hmm. your own preconceptions. What you already know. What you already know. It has right. to also come from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It has to come from the unknown. Mm-hmm. And to relate this back to what you were saying about porousness, I think one thing that's 
to me has been illuminating about the class and about thinking about artists art in this way in this mm-hmm. freer way is that there's I think there's an artist within all of us mm-hmm. you know and it's it's not and the I feel like the professional world is kind of doing this anyway but it's like we're not all organized into professional silos either mm-hmm. like we don't have to just do what mm-hmm. our job says we can do but mm-hmm. we can actually tap into mm-hmm. that creative part of ourselves whether what we do is politics or business yeah. or science or um, what have you yeah i just wrote an article re- recently and i kind of ended on i didn't kind of i ended on the question of um i've thought for a long time about how to bring my citizenry into my artistry mm. but i think now it's time for all of us artists to think about how to bring our artistry into our citizenry mm. so can we bring the same kind of creative thinking to pta meetings and boardrooms and you know everywhere and then i think the extend extending from that is what you just brought up how do we help everybody bring their artistry into their citizenry and it doesn't mean painting pictures yeah necessarily yeah it might but um there's such a pressure to innovate all the time but you can't innovate unless you really um, cultivate your imagination and your own sense of play yeah the other thing i was thinking about when you were talking is um a scholar and an editor of performing arts journal named Bonnie Marenka was saying to me a couple weeks ago, she was bemoaning how people don't read literature Mm -hmm. anymore. And she said, there's no good plays being written anymore because people aren't reading literature. They're not expanding their scope of thought. And for me, that is so true. Mm -hmm. You know, like even... Five years ago, I would love my subway rides because I'd be reading a book. And mm. now all I read is the news. Yeah. That is it. Mm-hmm. And that is not helping my art yeah. <laughs> making or like any kind of expansiveness of mind. Yeah. It's like so flattens you. Yeah. Flattens, flattens, flattens. And it's like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Yeah. Um, so that's something to consider too. There's this really interesting uh, metaphor that I heard once about the effect of art, and it was actually by the then Surgeon General Vivek Murthy mm-hmm. in the Kennedy Arts Kennedy Center for the Arts Summit, mm-hmm. and he described the um, the heart has two states, systole and diastole. Mm-hmm. Systole is when it contracts, and diastole is when it expands, and it's during diastole when the blood pumps, uh, the heart pumps blood into itself, into its own oh, muscle, and he's huh. like, you can't have systole without diastole, mm-hmm. and he was basically saying that art in many ways is like diastole. Uh-huh. Um, it is the state of expansion. It's the state of rest. It's the state of nourish, like self nourishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, obviously, there are works of art that are not necessarily about 
rest mm -hmm. <laughs> or or like nurturing. There are mm -hmm. works of art that are challenging and they're mm -hmm. meant to attack. Mm -hmm. But I think there's some truth to what he's saying about expansiveness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I like I like that image. Yeah. I like too just thinking that art that we can redefine what art is, that it's a state of being mm -hmm. as opposed to a product based or yeah. skill based thing. Yeah. So maybe there's just another word. Yeah. Altogether. It's like a kind of a kind of consciousness or a kind yeah. of layer of consciousness or something. I mean, we did talk about the beginner's mind mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. in class, and I think that that's part of a lot of artists' ways of being in the world, to sort of reject the expert brain. Mm -hmm. um, but when you were describing the heart, one thing I was thinking about was a big takeaway for me from the Milton Project is that the strength of a community is directly proportional to the amount of need that members of that community have for each other. Mm. Which was a big lesson for me because I didn't grow up with a big community. Or my family was like anti-community mm -hmm. somehow. Mm. Um, and so I've been asking myself that question a lot. Like why do I as... A liberal artist who lives in big cities and holds my views why do I need somebody who is the exact opposite of myself yeah who has different views and different life experiences I think we have to I think we have to be able to answer that question if if we want if we believe that there is such a thing as an American community I think that's one question and I think that the problem, and, and I'll bring us back around to the first thing that you were saying maybe before we were recording, I started our class with proposing that this ad I saw for the National Endowment for the Arts, I just put it out as a proposition. So I saw it one day when I was working out at the gym and it said, um, the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, because a great country deserves great art. Mm -hmm. And I was really troubled by that. And, I, and, um, and when I brought that into class, I think you were maybe the person who brought that up too, that the word deserves implies that it's not, that it's like a treat yeah. or like a dessert, that art is like a dessert you get if you perform well. Yeah. And... And I do think that that is the role that art's been allowed to play in our country. And, and there's a sense, I mean, every school who's dealing with funding issues, mm -hmm. you know, like, well, art's not necessary. Recess isn't necessary. Yeah. Music isn't necessary. Yeah. Expansion. Isn't Expansion is not necessary. Like expansion. Yeah, yeah, or like free thought, mm -hmm. freedom, physical freedom isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we're going to change that perspective. Yeah. But I do feel like the seeds are being planted through programs like the STEM to STEAM, yeah. putting art in engineering, mathematics, technology. Yeah. I do think that as um, people
people are turning their attention to questions about climate or civic infrastructure, they're starting to recognize that artists can be helpful mm -hmm. in those conversations. Um, but I guess that's the question I would would leave us with, or that these two semesters of teaching this class have left me with. How, what is, how do, how does the world need art, and how does art need the world? The world is a big, big vague term, but mm. you can supplant any term yeah. in there. So when I walk away from a really, from a really great concert for me, I mm -hmm. feel inspired and what it does is I feel like it uncaps me. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, I feel like the sort of like normal life I live is that I um, am worried about <laughs> making money and I'm worried about spending money and I, and I have these worries and I'm very routinized. Like mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. know that there are these certain things I'm, I'm trying to do when I have a five-year plan or whatever and I feel capped mm -hmm. I feel it dulls me mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it it makes me go on autopilot because mm -hmm. there are certain behaviors I know I can do that will um allow me to either I don't know basically function normally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what a really good concert does is that it it, it allows for that flow it, it uncaps me and I and I'm I always find that during concerts, I, I write the best songs. It's very weird, but I, I like I hear music in concerts, and after concerts, I write music the whole next day. Like I just it it totally uncaps me, and that's what I would hope for. Is I would hope that people who are feeling dulled by their world and their need to basically get by, I would hope that they suddenly feel uncapped and that suddenly like their world is a different kind of alive at least for a day mm -hmm. um, and that that would allow them to see beyond the sort of like um, perpetually dulling world that we have living in this society where we're taught success is a certain kind of thing or whatever um, that they can see beyond that um, yeah wow <laughs> so if you had to pick a word <laughs> A new word for art. A new word for oh, art. Oh yeah, so you picked porous. Porous. Yeah, porous. A porous state. Yeah. I don't know. So instead of artists, we can... I don't know, human. I might actually pick the word human. Mm. I think being in a creative state is the most human state you can be in. Mm -hmm. It's anti-human to be anti-creative. We're creating ourselves every second on, cell on cellular levels, on mm -hmm. neural pathway levels. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's what I would choose. Cool. I'll, I'll go with sponges. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs>
and a chat about what it's like to be Asian American in the arts. This episode was produced by yours truly, and the music was improvised by Martine Thomas, myself, Lila Smith, Ben Weatherfield, and Ian Askew. Thanks again, and bye for now. <laughs>